We're going to be looking in Psalm 14 today. Psalm 14. I invite you all to stand as we reverence the reading of God's Word. The message I call of a cause kids matter to God on Awana Sunday. There it is. Awana motto. Psalm 14 and 2. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. And may God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. Faith Baptist has been involved in the Iwana program for many years. And we do this because of our unfailing commitment uh, to that simple principle, kids matter to God. And uh, they matter to us too. And uh, we're very thankful for all of those who work in the Iwana program. We have about 50 people uh, who are working in the Iwana program. And if our Iwana program continues to grow as it has this year, uh, we're going to need some more. So if you're not working and you're looking for a place to get plugged in, all you have to do is see me or see Miss Susan, our children's ministry director, and uh, we'll be glad to get you the information that we need and, and get you plugged in because uh, uh, we are seeing growth throughout our Awana clubs, and we're very thankful for that. Uh, Awana is built upon scripture memory uh, based on the premise that God has given us a promise. If we'll hide his word in our hearts, then we shall not sin against him. God's word's powerful. And we start out in the Puggles, and that uh, is the uh, two-year-olds, and then right on up uh, to Cubbies, and on up uh, to Sparks, and, and Truth and Training, and Trek program. All of them uh, then are built on memorizing Scripture and enjoying that. And uh, if your kids come to Awana, uh, most likely they'll want to come back. Uh, so that's a good thing. Psalm 14 uh, speaks to us as... Uh, about God observing children from heaven. In a way, children are the object of much of what we do to advance the kingdom of God. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, uh, and this was in response to people who were shooing away the kids. Uh, they were coming to Jesus, and parents were bringing them. They wanted Jesus to lay hands on them and touch them. Uh, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Parents still want children to experience the touch of heaven on their lives. All right, Jesus saw those people shooing him away, and he said he was much displeased. In a way, that's enough said. He was not pleased at all. He was very unhappy when he saw people shooing children away from him. And he said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me. That means permit and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. Let me point out to you very quickly that Jesus did not say that you've got to be saved when you're a little child. That's not the truth. Uh, but he did say that you have to enter the kingdom of heaven like a little child. Uh, you have to understand that you're spiritually bankrupt, that you have no strength to help yourself, that you don't have the wisdom to think this thing through and make up your own plan and own, own path. Uh, Jesus described it, blessed are the poor in spirit. For they shall see God. We have to recognize, like a little child, that we need something that is beyond ourselves. He who humbles himself then as a little child, that person can be saved, regardless of what age they are. Uh, Psalm 14 then will consider two groups of people that are clearly identified in the text. 
He begins in verse 1 by saying, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. Then verse 4, Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people. There's a second group. As they eat bread and do not call on the Lord, they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. So on the one hand, there is a people group that God calls a fool. And they are called a fool because they do not believe God exists. In spite of incredible evidence to the contrary. I've often said it. I mentioned it to my Sunday school class again, and I'll say it again today. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I don't. Because I would have to believe that the universe created everything, created itself, and then created everything else. Uh, I, I, I just don't have enough faith in a rock to believe that give it millions of years, it's going to somehow sprout legs and become a life-giving. We have no explanation for how life began, no credible explanation. Science is not for how life began. After all these years, they've got theories. They believe them very strongly. I don't believe that way. I believe the Word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But the fool, God says, has said in spite of this incredible evidence to the contrary, in spite of the fact that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork day after day, Day after day, night after night, the creation is preaching the message of Creator God. But there are those who make a decision, and they voice that decision. There is no God. On the other hand, he describes a generation of the righteous who are also called my people. And it is within that framework then that God is looking down on the children, the children of man. Now, Scripture is absolutely clear on the fact that there are decisions that parents can make that have profound effects on the lives of their children. It is equally clear that children can have an effect on their parents and on their decisions. I want you to notice Isaiah chapter 29, verse 22. It's an incredible passage. Therefore, thus says the Lord, who's speaking? God is. God is. He's speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now grow pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will hallow my name and hallow the Holy One of Jacob and fear the God of Israel. These also who erred in spirit will come to understanding, and those who complain will learn doctrine. We notice right up front that God calls children the work of His hands. We might call them my kids. God calls them His kids. They are the work of my hands. There will never be a baby born anywhere on the face of this planet that is not the handiwork of our Creator God. I grant you that they have human parents. I understand that process very well. But God is the one who wrote this. These are my children. They are the work of my hands. God is the one who gives them life. Beyond that then, God says that His people will not be ashamed of their conduct. 
They might turn their backs on him, walk away from him, and engage in terrible things. But he said, one of these days, they're going to turn around and look. And what they're going to see is their kids doing the same thing that they're doing. Judah won't be ashamed until they see their kids standing in the midst of them. And when they see these children that have come to them as a blessing of God, he said, then they will hallow the Holy One of Israel. They will honor God. They will fear the God of Israel. Those who have erred in their spirit, and that means they've developed a very bad attitude toward God and toward His work and toward His uh, service. They will uh, repent of that and turn to God, and they will instead then begin to learn doctrine instead of all that complaining and fussing that they once had. You see, children learn by observing their parents. And the traits of their parents and the decisions of their parents will be passed along to them, whether they are good or bad. But here Isaiah, God says through Isaiah the prophet that it is possible for children to have a profound effect on the lives of their parents. I've seen that play out multitudes of times over the years. Something about having those kids following along makes us want to change our behavior as believers. It's how God's people react. We can see how that God's work is more important, how His truth really matters, how living the way that God tells us to live is important. Our children point us in that direction. And the reason why this is so important is clearly shown in Psalm 14 with the two people groups then identified by God. God sees humanity under two general headings, those who are saved and those who are lost, those who are going to heaven and those who are going to hell. And the difference between those two is not based on what kind of life they live. The difference between those two is whether they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ or whether they reject Him. All across this world today, there are those who are living a life of rejection toward God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Then there are those who receive Him. And since the psalm discusses these two people groups, that's going to be the substance of this message today. And first of all, we'll see then the fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord. Twice. In this passage, God pronounces the indictment, there is none who does good. It isn't enough that God says it twice here. He repeats it in Romans chapter 3, Romans 3 and 11. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. I emphasize the words they have together become unprofitable because in both Psalm 14 and in Romans 3, uh, that emphasis is there. Remember, God has described the person who says there is no God. He says it. He declares it. 
He accepts that then as the basis of his life truth. There is no God. That decision has predictable effects. And when God then looks at the children of such people, he sees the exact same thing reflected in the children that he sees in the parents. They have together become corrupt. The person who denies God becomes corrupt. He raises children that become corrupt. Parents are not doing good. Children are not doing good. Parents have decided there is no God, so their children do not seek God, nor even have an understanding of how to do so. Perhaps the passage says there's none that seeks after God. You see, man does not naturally seek after God. There is none that seek after God. If a person is seeking after God, that is proof positive that the Holy Spirit has been working in his life. It is possible, and I always think about this possibility. There are people here that I've never met before in this service right now. Maybe this is your first time here. And, and you might have been raised in a family that didn't believe in God. And, and you might be here today and, and, and just questioning, seeking, wondering. Maybe you've been at, in church as a child. But you've showed up here, saw our sign, drove by, whatever. I don't know what brought you here. Only you know, and God knows. But I want you to know this morning you are not here by accident. You didn't know what I was going to preach. I didn't know what, that you were going to be here. <laughs> uh, but within... The providence of God. God's brought us together. And I'm going to tell you, if you're seeking after God, that is proof positive that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. Because the Bible says there's none who seeks after God. It is not our natural inclination. We don't just wake up one day and say, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to seek after God. That's not how it works. All the way back to the Garden of Eden. It was God who went looking for Adam. Adam and Eve were hiding from God. But it was God who went looking for them. And Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus also said, John 6, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me. Draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. God works through the Holy Spirit through the circumstances of our life, to draw us, to show us our need to be saved. You see, there's no stronger environment for the Holy Spirit to work in the hearts of lost boys and girls than in a home where God is loved, where God's Word is honored, where His truth is talked about, where Mom and Daddy love each other and love them. And they teach them the Word of God. And God's Word then can be learned. And, and God can be worshipped and honored and revered. And there will come that time then in that child's life where they understand that when God said, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that all means me. And there's no better environment for that to happen than in a home where parents love each other and love God where they talk about God and, and share the scriptures, and where they pray before they eat and, and pray before they go to bed, and, and they are raising then their child in an environment where when that person, when that child reaches the age of accountability, they, the Holy Spirit is just right there. and That heart is tender 
and they're ready to be saved. That doesn't mean, however, that the child of unbelieving parents can never be saved. That's not the truth. There's a whole book in the Bible that carries the name of a woman named Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. Her parents did not know God. Nobody in her circle of friends or influence knew God. But God brought into her life a believing family. It was not her family. It was not her mom and dad. It was not her kinfolk. Uh, these folks were foreigners from a, a land known as Israel far away, but they came into her life. And it wasn't long then before Ruth was a part of God's family. How much so, this woman who was living her life as a Moabite under the curse of God, a people renowned for their evil and depravity, but Ruth became great-grandmother of the man whose writings we are studying today, King David himself. I'm not telling you this morning that just because you were raised in an unbelieving family, that means you can never be saved because that's not the teaching of Scripture. But I will tell you that the most conducive environment for children to grow up and get under conviction and realize they need God in their life is in the family where people love God and believe on Him. And I will tell you, I will tell you, sadly, Children who are raised in unbelieving families very often never, ever, ever come to God. Doesn't mean they don't have a chance. It just means they don't. The fool had said in his heart, there is no God. And God looked at their children. And he saw that their children were being raised just like their parents. Their parents didn't believe in God, children don't believe. Parents are corrupt, children are corrupt. Parents aren't doing anything that God could call good. Children aren't doing anything that God can call good. God was looking. God's watching. He still is. Don't you know God hurts, God's heart breaks for the way so many children are being raised in America today. You see them. I see them too. But what's really important is God sees them. God sees them. So if he speaks to those that he calls fools, the text then moves to those who are righteous. Verse 4, have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Notice that the two groups that God describes in this passage are not living in isolation from one another. Jesus talked about that in the parable of the tares and the wheat. We do not live in isolation one from another, but we are mingled together in the masses of humanity. And God presents in Psalm 14 that one of these groups is targeting the other, and that is the unbelieving crowd, he says, are eating up my people as they eat bread. That is the unbelieving crowd, the worldly crowd, 
are trying to devour my people. I want to say this as simply, but yet as straightforward as I can. And I say this not just because it's my opinion. I want you to see it. It's right there in the Word of God. I didn't say it. God said it. I'm only saying it because He did. The worldly crowd, the wicked crowd, the people who do not believe are targeting the people of God. The unbelieving world is after your kids and you and me. They want to eat us up, devour us like bread. The world, for the most part, has unrestricted access to the minds and hearts of believers all the time. That's the world that we live in. Kids form friendship and are around a crowd of other kids all the time. Social media and the Internet never sleeps. They don't ever even get tired. It's constantly, constantly being influenced by the ideas and ideals of the world, the unbelieving world. The world is relentless and ruthless in this pursuit. What's interesting is why God says they're doing this. Why do they eat up my people as they eat bread? And those who do not call on the Lord. Well, because he says they are in great fear. They are in great fear. Now, when we listen to the unbelieving crowd and how they respond and how they react to Christianity and to the Christian faith and message and to the gospel of Jesus Christ, so exclusive that gospel is. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. We hear their offensiveness. Oh, that's offensive to me. We we hear their hatred. Oh, I hate that message. I hate the name of Jesus Christ. But while that's coming out of their mouth, God listens to what is in their heart. And you know what's in their heart? He said it. (laughs) I can see it up there. Y'all see it up here. He said it. They're afraid. Who are they afraid of? They're afraid we're right. It's fear that motivates them. A deep-seated fear they could neither deny nor get rid of. Every child of God who lives for Jesus Christ and every time we share the gospel and every time we mention the name of Jesus Christ, they might respond with anger and hatred, but God sees what's in their heart. They're afraid. Have you ever noticed that other religions around the world do not face the same kind of hostility and animosity that Christians do? Have you noticed that the message of Christianity seems particularly singled out by the world in which we live? Yeah. Fear. Fear. But God promises then three things to people who love Him and who honor Him. First of all, he says, God is with his people. Aren't you glad that is true? Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is absolutely true. God is with his people. It's noteworthy that God says generations, singular, rather than generations. It has often been said that God has children, but no grandchildren. Every generation has to make their own decision about God. Every generation will have to receive Jesus Christ for themselves. Every generation will either perpetuate the truth or let it slip away. 
Again, we remember there's no more conducive environment for children to decide to follow Jesus than a home where people are committed to Jesus Christ and love Him and serve Him. In this fight that we are all in as the world is targeting us, and and we see that, uh, they try to eat us up like bread. But we don't have to fight that fight alone because God is with the generation of His people. It's another way of God reminding us that God didn't used to be with his people. <laughs> no. Well, I can see how God was with his people back under. No. Uh-uh. I can see he was with the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. Man, wasn't that a great time? Yeah, but today's a great time. God is still with us today. God is still working in us today. Holy Spirit lives inside of us. God is still working in his people today. God is with us. God is with us. You don't have to face this alone because God is with us. And then second great truth that God presents, God is our refuge. God is our refuge. You see, not only are they trying to eat us up like bread, but God says also that they try to make us ashamed. They shame us. They shame the, the poor you know, we believe some things for no other reason than because the Bible teaches us to believe them. We, we believe that some things are right and other things are wrong. And the only basis that we have for that is because thus saith the Lord God. We, we believe it because God said it. It's right there in His book. But the world at large is doing everything they can to make us ashamed of who we are and of what we believe. And on the most fundamental level, it is to be ashamed of our Christ. And while we might vehemently and loudly deny, I'm not ashamed. We might sing that song and and shout at them, I'm not ashamed. But how often are we sharing the gospel? How often do we talk about Jesus Christ? Do we ever find ourselves intimidated to speak what we know the Bible says? Or do we just back away from conversations because we don't want to make somebody mad or upset. I know how it is. Listen, I face the same kind of intimidation you do, but that's exactly what the world is wanting us to do. They're wanting us to be ashamed of who we are and of what we believe. It's hard to stand up for these students in school against ostracism. It's hard to stand up against discrimination, against hostility, about being left out of the popular crowd. I understand that. But though the world may turn away from us and shun us and mock us, God is our refuge and our strength. We might be abandoned by everybody else, but never God. We might not have anywhere to go. (laughs) Go to God. God is your refuge and your strength. Proverbs 14, 26 says it this way, And the fear of the Lord is strong confidence, and his children, that is the children of God, shall have a place of refuge. Great passage. So, God is with His people. God is a refuge to His people. And then, lastly, God releases us from captivity. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of His people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. The relentless attack that comes against us from the devil and his crowd, this ruthless enemy that never sleeps, it takes its toll. It can wear us down after a while. We'd be in denial this morning if we didn't acknowledge that sometimes the world wins a battle or two. 
Sometimes we get tired and we get wore down and, 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 and wore out. And, and all of a sudden, some battle that we thought was over long ago, we surfaced and we're having to fight that battle all over again. Some sin that we thought was banished from our life, but suddenly in a time of weakness, under that relentless pursuit of the world and the devil, we find that thing coming back. We're having to fight that all over again. I want you to know that God is in the captivity releasing business. When sin takes us captivity into captivity, God can deliver us out of it. And he does that for his people. You see, sin and the devil and the world never win the war. They might win a battle or two, but they'll never win the war because salvation comes out of Zion. I've read the end of the book as it's been so often said. <laughs> and God and his people win. It always ends the same way. One of my favorite movies is True Grit. Uh, I, I love that movie. John, I'm, I'm talking about the old movie with John Wayne in it. Uh, not the new version. I, I, no, stay away from that one. It's, it's not worth watching. Sorry, Kurt Russell. Uh, John Wayne. He was the man. Every time that movie comes on, I watch it. It always ends the same way. <laughs> Ending's always the same. I like it. Funny thing about books and movies, and the ending never change, changes. That's why when we talk about I've read the end of the book, and I know how it turns out, doesn't matter how many times you read God's book, it's going to end the same way. God wins, and his people win with him. There is indeed victory in Jesus. We'll wrap things up this morning with a few passages of Scripture. I'm just going to read basically without comment. Remember Psalm 14 and verse 3 said that they have together become corrupt. God looks down on the children of those who have said there is no God. He sees the Generation that said that as corrupt, unprofitable. There's none of them that do good. And he watches to see then if their children are seeking after him. But they're not. By contrast, Proverbs 13:22 says, a good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. I like that. Children's children. Uh, that's grandkids. Yeah. You see, while God has children but no grandchildren, we do have grandchildren, and the effect of a righteous life doesn't just affect our kids. It can affect our grandkids, too. Passes along. Proverbs 27 the just man walketh in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. What a passage. Moses would stand before the children of Israel on an occasion where he would set before them, he said, the way of life and the way of death, the way of blessing and the way of cursing. And the difference between that, those two, the way of life and the way of death, the way of blessing and the way of cursing, was the Word of God. <laughs> if you'll hear God's Word and obey it, you'll have life and you'll be blessed. If you don't, 
then you die under the curse. Choose. Choose. It's impossible for me this morning to say with any more fervor than what I've said that the most conducive environment in which to raise children is an environment where parents love one another, love God, honor Him, learn and teach His truth, and live a life dedicated to God. I can't promise you, I wish I could, but I can't promise you that you might not still have a child in spite of everything that happens. They might go the wrong direction. Some of you might be living out that pain right now. But God's given you a promise. And his promise is that he keeps his word to them, whether they keep their word to him or not. <laughs> Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from them. You bend them right, and they stay bent. That's what the word train means. To bend like you bend a tree. And once it grows in that direction, it stays bent. We're in the bending business. We want them inclined toward God. That's what our WANA program is all about. Stand together, please.